murdering us. Stop murdering us. Stop murdering us. What do we want? Safe streets. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Safe streets. When do we want it? Now. Safe streets. Save lives. Safe streets. Save lives. From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, everybody. Hey, How's Nick. How's it going? Hi, everyone. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Lindsay. How are you guys? Good. You know, those chants we heard at the top of the show, that was from a die-in recently on the steps of City Hall in Los Angeles. Uh, in 2022, 312 people were killed in traffic violence on the streets of Los Angeles. And they had at the Diane 312 white roses, one for every person killed last year from traffic violence in L.A. There were elected officials there. You had Senator Portantino and Assemblymember Laura Friedman, who I was there with. Councilmember Bob Blumenfeld was there. It was an important day. You know, someone mentioned that there were 312 killed, but that that really doesn't account for the people who have been maimed by cars. That, right. that number gets a lot bigger. This is Damien Kevitt. He's the founder of SAFE, which is uh, Streets Are For Everyone. And he was speaking to the crowd. We are here today because the streets of Los Angeles are a battleground. 312 lives lost and thousands severely injured last year alone due to traffic violence. This is the highest on record, the highest in over 20 years, period. Personally, as a cyclist or as a pedestrian, you have been personally hit, walking or biking. Wow. Look around. Look at how many people. Practically every single person here has been personally hit, cycling or walking. That is the streets of Los Angeles. We interviewed people to hear why they were there and what brought them there. And the first person we talked to was Joe Borfo from Bike Oven in Highland Park. Hi, we're on the steps of City Hall and I'm talking to Joe. Hello. I am a cyclist and commuter to work on a daily basis. And I'm here because I feel like I risk my life every day. Um, Just uh, trying to get to work. Uh, the streets can be a lot safer. There can be some simple bike lanes. I'm always having to make sure I don't get plowed down and people treat me like I'm not equal to them on the road. I feel like I'm a lesser of a person on a bicycle. The city needs to improve the infrastructure uh, immediately. We can be like other cities like Portland and Austin and uh, parts of Europe, they, they've transformed because bikes uh, and pedestrians take precedence of the road, whereas cars rule the road here. And that should be different. Cars should be guests. And when you get your driver's license, you should have to learn about bicycles and how to ride. I love that he talks about how when people get their license, they should be taught about bicycle use on the streets, not just how to ride, but how to deal with bicycles on the street. A regular cyclist has so much information about infrastructure and he understands the concept that cars should be gas, which is a, you know, one of the things the Dutch teach us, but it's really amazing how cyclists have had to understand the politics and the policy just to stay safe. Riding gives you a visceral experience of infrastructure, interacting with cars and you're interacting with everybody on the road and everything. I grew up in Europe, in Sweden, and traffic safety is very high. It was very safe. And since I lived in Los Angeles, I noticed it hasn't been that safe. And I'm a good friend of Damien Kevitt. So when I heard he's doing this event, I want to come out and support because there are simple things that everybody can do to make you know the street safer and also safer for children and through education and also having drivers being more attentive and not speeding. So I know it's possible. I grew up that way and I want to be here to support it. It's possible. Countries all over the world do it. It's really just a choice. Yeah. Hey, Seamus, you were there with Laura, right? I was there. It was my, it might've been my last event ever staffing her. I thought she gave a, a fantastic speech. Let's hear it. Good morning, everyone. I'm Assembly Member Laura Friedman. <laughs> Traffic violence is a choice. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. Yes, it's a choice made by entitled drivers, but even more importantly, it's a choice that has been made by policymakers, by government, 
by our cities, by our communities. It is time to recognize that it's not even just about making real the dream of no traffic fatalities, which is possible, but it's also about recognizing that the way that we have designed our streets is unsafe, it's bad for public health, it's not sustainable, it's bad for climate, and it's not equitable. Laura has been such a leader on this issue. And it was really amazing to hear her and see her up there. And, and people were clapping because they know what Laura has done for, for the issue of bike safety and bike lanes and climate in, in the state. Yeah, I mean, she's a true believer in bikes and active transportation. She's definitely always fought for it. Yeah, there was a time when a, a government official wouldn't speak that way. Now they're starting to learn that you know, it is a choice that we're choosing to let people die on the streets and we can choose to fix that. Yeah. We have one of a city council member, Bob Blumenfield from L.A. City Council. My name is Bob Blumenfield. I serve as an L.A. City Council member and I represent the West San Fernando Valley. And why are you here today? I'm here to die. Perfect. <laughs> Love that. But to be part of the die-in, to show solidarity with the folks who actually have died, I don't mean to make light because it is a very serious issue. I've been to too many ghost bike ceremonies in my district. And we need to do better as a city, as a community, to actually implement our mobility plan and to actually make our streets safer for pedestrians and bikers and everyone. We need to change it. I'm here to help make that statement. When we all lay down on the steps of City Hall, 312 seconds is a long time. That's a lot of lives. This is the... The second one of these, there was another one that some of the guys who were there, Joe Linton and folks were posting about. I saw some tweets with pictures of the die-in from 2015 or something. That was under the Sunset Bridge. Yeah. We also got to speak to California State Senator Anthony Portentino, who's recently become an avid cyclist and has also become a real leader on this issue. You know, I've become a recent biker in the past 26 months, and so I've seen the, the near hits and the, uh, you know, in my own experiences, and then I've met a lot more bikers, and, you know, more people are using active transportation. The pandemic got people out of their cars more, and so the need for safety is greater. We just have to meet that challenge. So what are the bills you want to introduce this year? So last year we did a bill to use data to find the hotspots around the state where where those problem areas are and make those a priority in fixing where we know that the dangers exist so we worked to put that on the governor's desk this year we're doing some uh, uh, more uh, planning tool stuff around um, I'm, I'm actually working with streets for all on prohibiting uh, apartments from not letting people bring their e-bikes and their e-scooters into their apartments. And so we're trying to make it easier for people to have alternative modes of transportation. So that's what we're going to focus. So last year was more on safety. This year it's on access issues. So we're you know, trying to keep it going. What Are you hopeful about speed cameras and cities being able to you know, lower their speed limits? I've been supportive of those electronic devices. I mean, I know we have some of the, the, the civil libertarian folks and we, we have to be deferential to that, but I do think the technology works. No, I think we need to embrace technology to make California safer. I mean, this, you know, we, we spent a lot of money on, on developing these these alternative uh, enforcement mechanisms. You know, we're, we're a technology-driven world, and we should use it for a positive purpose, not a negative purpose. <laughs> Let the data talk. We also got to dig in with Laura Friedman on some of the important bills that she's introducing this year. What are the bills you're thinking about for this year? This year, we are reintroducing our automated speed enforcement bill, which we've been working on now for two years. We've been unsuccessful, but we're going to keep going. We have two other bills, um, AB6 and AB7, that are attempting to change funding formulas for how we finance large transportation projects so that we do less highway widening, more sprawl-inducing, uh, single-occupancy car-centric projects and put more money into active transportation, meaning really safe streets, and also mass transit. Amazing. Laura, thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you. Good to see you. Oh, should we introduce Michael Schneider? Michael Schneider from Streets for All. He has been really an effective um, advocate you know, I think at times to the chagrin of some, to the delight of others, I think it'd be interesting to talk about, you know, Michael Schneider's role in advocacy. But you guys caught up with Michael Schneider again afterwards. He has a lot of good things to say. 
Hi, Michael Schneider. Thank you so much for uh, coming on Bike Talk. Hi, Lindsay. <laughs> Tell us what brought you down here today. Well, the city of LA has a traffic violence problem, and 312 people were killed last year, many more injured, and even many more tens of thousands of close calls. And I don't think you should need to risk your life to ride a bike or take a walk in the city of LA, and that is our current status quo, and today was hopefully an effort in the right direction to change that. Thank you for everything you do for this cause. You too. You're both communities. So that was Michael Schneider, and here is Grandma Beverly, the founder of Southern California Families for Safe Streets. My grandson died in 2009 just trying to cross the street in Berkeley. He was with three other children and a teacher, and he could not make it across the street. And then we talked to Grandma Beverly after the die-in. You can't call it anything but Vision Zero, because if you were to call it Vision One, that means one person it's okay to die. And at this group here today, how many kids were here? Pick one that it was okay for them to die. That would be a zero, right? That's why it's vision zero. I just hope we're starting to wake up. You know, it's so fixable. When we build the infrastructure to make it safe, we're going to get more people on bikes. We're going to get children riding to school. We're going to get adults. We're going to get people going to work. We're going to get cargo bikes. Uh, it, it's just, it's a win-win situation when we build streets that are safe for everyone. I totally agree. I do think, though, that the politicians are not reading the data right. They, they keep trying to keep the cars going, you know, and don't slow them down at all. And it doesn't it doesn't work. One of the speakers said cars have to be guests when their bikes around. What Grandma Beverly said is so true. It's like if you ask yourself, what is the speed you want a car going when it hits a kid, knowing that at 20 miles an hour, there's a 10 percent chance they die. And at nine miles an hour, there's a very good chance they'll be okay. I'm like, you know what? I don't want cars hitting kids ever. Right. None. I don't want it's zero speed. We keep trying to do this incrementally and in small little ways. And nobody will give up a minute, 30 seconds, 10 seconds in their car. It really has to be a much bigger effort. Yeah. Lindsay, I totally agree with you. After the die-in, I was able to get a minute to talk to Damien privately. Damien is the manifestation of traffic violence. Mm. So here's that interview. I am here with Damien Kebet. Here's an article that I found from 2013 that says injured cyclist takes first steps toward rehab and recovery. That was my personal buy-in. That was your personal Diane. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I know you've been a host many times. I mean, a guest many times on Bike Talk. And I know that you've talked about your accident before. But I wonder if you could tell the viewers now a little bit about what happened in 2013 to you after L.A. was already aware that our streets are very dangerous. Yeah, well, I want to start by saying uh, and no offense in this at all. It wasn't an accident. Thank you for that. Can't believe I said that. It's okay. It's, you know, it's, and and I'm, I'll just kick it off with, with that. Again, this is not, I'm not offended and this is not an offense to you at all, but words matter. How one acknowledges something, whether it's a race, a gender identity, a preference, words matter. And in this case, you know, there's been a lot of work on, on traffic safety organizations. Streets Are For Everyone's heavily involved in this across the entire U.S., to rephrase the term accident to crash or collision. And, and there's a reason for that. Uh, and I, I mess up periodically and I call it an accident. So it's an easy thing to do. But th the reason is, is because by actual scientific study and, and different studies have different numbers that come out, but they range between about 95 to 98% of the time, there is a known cause point that could have prevented that crash or collision, fatality, serious injury from happening in the first place. Right. So they're, they're preventable by actual scientific study. Uh, some say they're preventable 100% of the time. Uh, most studies say 95 to 98% of the time they are preventable. Right. And if you take an analogy of, if you look at airlines and the commercial airline industry, you, you almost never call it, no one ever calls it an accident. When a plane, a plane falls from the sky, accident, they don't say like, right. yeah. They're like, well, the plane fell from the sky. It was an accident. No, it was a plane crash, <laughs> right. right? And that's what it's called. And they're always treated by the FAA as preventable. It was, was it mechanical error? Was it pilot error? Was it 
weather related and what could be done to prevent it from ever happening again. And that's really important to think with because if we were to think with traffic violence in the same way, you know, when that person was seriously injured or killed, what could have been done to prevent it? Was it driver error? Was it the street design, the lack of lighting or multiple factors? Right. And if we were to do that, of course, the numbers are horrific. The number of, of fatalities alone are horrific and it would be a gargantuan task. But to simply start with acknowledging the fact that these are not accidents, they are right. crashes or collisions you find more responsible media members are aware of this and they're and they're starting to call it a crash or collision. Uh, police departments are now calling them TCs, not TAs, TCs, traffic crashes or traffic collisions, not traffic right. accidents. So so this is a, a thing and, and I'm I'm telling you, I know you understand this, but I'm also telling all everyone listening, please move that phrasing to crash or collision and encourage others to do the same because if we can get that concept in people's heads that these are preventable, right? not inevitable that people die because they're using the streets. 312. Yeah, 312 in LA alone, right. 42,000 you know, plus in the United States dying. If, if we can rephrase that and get people to understand that those deaths are not inevitable, they were, they were preventable to that degree, we're moving the subject forward. So I've gone off on a little bit of a, a digression there. So tell me your question again. There. Well, my, my question was, I wonder if you could tell the, the audience again what happened on that day in, in 2013. 2013, February 17th. I was riding with my wife coming off the LA River bike path near the zoo going. If you're familiar with Griffith Park, there's a four-way stop sign. It was a Sunday morning, about 11.35 in the morning. And I was coming through off the Rally River bike path and it was stop and stop traffic. It wasn't even stop and go. Right. It was just incredibly congested. And, and we were trying to pick our way through the traffic to get past the stop sign where you one turn left onto the freeway. We were getting close to that sort of intersection there. And then there's another intersection, you know, the LA Zoo. And we were going to the LA Zoo. That was where we were going for the for a picnic. And a vehicle crossed over in front of me, probably didn't even see me coming. I couldn't get to the, even to the right side of the path. There were so many cars. I was sort of splitting the lane there. And he crossed over onto oncoming traffic, onto the other side of the road to get around everyone because he was didn't want to be waiting. Right, something illegal and hit me. And, and it was a minor collision that he was doing less than 10 miles an hour. I was doing less than 10 miles an hour just trying to sort of what I thought safely pick my way through this uh, congested area there. And I um, impacted on the side of his car. I was visible, rolled onto the hood of his car and it was a minivan. Uh, I didn't get a good look at the person I say him because I, I've been told by eyewitnesses that it was a younger male, younger early 20s male. I fell off the hood of the car and he floored it, ran over my right ankle and crushed it and ended up pinning me underneath the car. I, I fell off the hood. Luckily, I had a helmet and hit pretty hard, but I had a helmet, so the helmet absorbed that impact. When he ran over my right ankle, I went out and lost consciousness. I was a a bit much, a bit traumatic to have your right ankle crushed uh, by the wheels of the car. And but I came back to he he ran over my right ankle and pinned me underneath the car, and then ended up took a left and and was going down the on ramp of the freeway. And I came back to fairly fast. I was I would estimate probably about a third of the way down the on ramp of the five of the freeway onto the five freeway. And I came back to and I was looking up at the bottom side of the car feeling the road tearing at the backside of my skin. So he was dragging you. He was dragging me. I was pinned underneath the car and being dragged. And I I, I could see the engine compartment and the, the gearbox and things like that. And, you know, right in front of my face. And um, I tried to yell and bang on the underside of the car. I actually ended up banging on the, the exhaust muffler, scalding my, my hand, my oh left my hand had, was burnt, third degree burns. And um, quickly realized that he was not stopping. In fact, he was speeding up. I could feel him speeding up and knew that I had seconds to live or die. 
you know, people say that when you're in these traumatic circumstances, time goes slow. Seconds are minutes and minutes are hours. And in the few seconds, I, I thought about it. I thought about, I'm likely going to die. And do I want to try to save myself? What will be the consequences? I was, I was going through, what are the consequences? Will I ever be able to walk again? Will I be a cripple? Will I, is this worth it? Should I just let it go? I wasn't particularly fearful. I couldn't say I was calm, but, you know, I mean, but I wasn't, I wasn't in panic mode. I was in analytically trying to figure out, am I going to live or die? And how do I do this? My wife was up, still up. She was, had been about 50 feet behind me on the bridge. I really didn't, didn't really want her to find me dead and friends. And I had, I had things. I wasn't done yet. I had things to do, you know, right. Uh, I wanted to go to Disneyland or something, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I proceeded to try to figure out how to get free. And the details of getting free are honestly gruesome, nauseatingly gruesome. I got myself free, ended up with 10 broken ribs, shattered both my shoulders, my hips, my wrists. I had about 20 pounds of flesh that was torn off my back and my rear end down to the bone in some places. My right leg, which had been crushed originally, was there was the foot was hanging on, but there were bones that were gone. The bones were literally left on the side of the road. And gashes throughout my body and, and my face scraped up. I had road burns to a good 60% of my body. Teeth were missing. Miraculously, though, my face had been obviously scraped up and damaged. It barely missed my eyes. And, you know, how do you say you're lucky? You know, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was lucky. <laughs> my right leg was just ripped off. I lost 20 pounds of flesh, but hey, I'm doing good. All joking aside, I ended up on the five freeway. All my clothes had been shredded off, laying in a pool of blood. My uh, wife was the first person to really find me on the freeway. There was actually a, a lady named Rose Rubin, who I'm still friends with to this day. And Rose uh, saw the collision and then took off after the driver, not realizing I was stuck underneath the car. Rose was going to the LA Zoo that day with her daughter, her teenage daughter. And so she was chasing and speeding up to get a hold of him when I, as he's going down the five freeway, suddenly pop out from under the car. God. Luckily, she was far enough away that she could stop in time. And she stopped, turned on her blinkers, opened her doors, and basically just was like, even if my car gets totaled by another vehicle, I'm going to protect him on the freeway. And this is on the five freeway, right? This is on the five freeway, a good 600 feet from down from the location, you know, where I was first hit there. I mean, we're, we're closing. We, by the time I was actually stopped, it was close to a quarter of a mile. Not quite, but close to. So she stopped to protect me. My wife on her bicycle saw a car on the freeway, stopped, and sort of knew that somehow or another that was connected to me and rode her bike down onto the freeway and found me and was the first person to really sort of find me, went running up to me. And uh, she thought I was dead. I mean, you know, I looked horrific. You could see bones. You could see, you know, blood was pooling. It was horrific. And I opened my eyes and I looked up at her and I said, this fucking sucks, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, and, and it's appropriate to laugh it is because one, it was the understatement of the century. I mean, yes, yeah, this is true. That is truth. Thank you, Damien. But it was, it showed to her that I, I was aware of, like I had my cognitive abilities and I was aware of what had just happened. I wasn't honestly aware of how bad the damage was. Right. I could spend an hour right. telling you some of the miraculousness of the stories from that point forward. But that incident is the reason why I'm talking to you here today. I'm sorry to ask you to retell that story. I'm sure you've told it many times, but I think it's important for our listeners to hear the kind of damage that cars can do when they are let free on the road like that. And uh, you you indeed, you know, weren't done. And the next article that I have here is injured cyclist prepares to finish the ride he started. You founded a couple of organizations, finished the ride and safe, which is streets are for everyone. 
somehow you managed to turn that real tragedy in, into some, some positive things to save other lives. That was Damien Kevin, founder of Streets Are For Everyone and organizer of the Los Angeles Die-In for Safe Streets with Taylor Nichols. Now the author of an LA Times op-ed on how to prevent pedestrian deaths. This is Miriam Pinsky, who wrote the op-ed on preventing pedestrian traffic deaths in Los Angeles recently. And we had you on a while back because you had another op-ed on penalties that are ineffective for reckless driving that are tied to driver's licenses. You touch on that again here. I do. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for having me on again, by the way. Absolutely. Thank you. And we're doing an episode on the die-in that happened recently uh, at City Hall, talking about how dangerous Los Angeles is. And in your article, you talk about how you talk about the same thing, how more people died in traffic collisions last year than any other over the past two decades. Why is that happening? And is it just Los Angeles or is that nationwide? Yeah, it's definitely not just Los Angeles, unfortunately. Um, And there seem to be a lot of factors at play. So some uh, are pandemic specific, less congested roadways that allowed for faster driving. Um, It's something that traffic experts call the speed effect. So a major way that we usually force cars to slow down isn't through speed limits or slower cars or narrow streets, but with congestion. So when roads were less congested, people drove faster and collisions were a lot more likely to be severe, fatal. It could also be that drivers were more aggressive um, or that people who drove more and were less likely to stay home were also people that were less risk averse. So, you know, people without valid licenses, those are drivers whose licenses were suspended, revoked, expired, or just didn't have one, accounted for a lot of that spike in fatal crashes during the pandemic. But kind of the the trend towards dangerous roads really isn't just a pandemic problem. Road fatalities have been rising in the U.S. for a decade, and there are a lot of reasons for that, and none of those are going to surprise your listeners. Vehicles are getting bigger, they're getting heavier, they're getting faster, more numerous, and drivers are drinking and using drugs and then driving and looking at their screens while driving, and that all adds up. So you're doing a lot of research. I do focus on... Uh, you know, ways that we can make traffic, let us all travel safely and not just in vehicles. Unfortunately, the way our roads are set up is really around car travel. And so I want to do my part in helping make it safer to get around other ways. And one of the ways you're focusing on is, for lack of a better word, punishment, (laughs) which is enforcement, right? Yeah. I'm Also, okay, for one thing, punishments are just one of many tools that we have to address road safety. Um, A first best policy really is to create a system that assumes that people are going to make mistakes or even knowingly break the rules. So if you assume that someone is sitting behind the wheel of like a supersized truck and that they can't see a kid crossing in front of them, then maybe we shouldn't allow people to drive those kinds of cars on public roads or You know, if you assume someone driving a car is going to get impatient when there's a cyclist or a pedestrian in front of them slowing them down uh, because they could otherwise drive a lot more quickly, then maybe you establish speed limiters on cars or design roads that are too narrow that you can't really drive that easily around people in front of you. Um, But given that we do make it very easy for people to kill people with cars, we should punish people that do act dangerously. So you know, a driver might see a break in traffic when they're approaching a red light, but they're going to think twice before speeding up or running a red light if they know that there's going to be a camera there that's going to catch that. And so, you know, I say that punishment should be um, swift and certain more than severe. So what that means is that a driver should know instantly that they've been caught with a camera and they can expect a ticket in their mailbox. That doesn't mean that the ticket needs to be that high for them to drive slower and avoid the ticket the next time they cross that intersection. Licenses are, you know, quite a contrast to that. They only really kick in if a driver gets caught and stopped by a police officer. And they might only kick in after you've accumulated a certain number of violations. License-based penalties? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, they tend to happen a lot longer after the fact of having, you know, broken a traffic rule. (laughs) If we were to just summarize what some of the ways that you've just said, some of the things we can do, 
you said we might consider not letting people drive oversized trucks where they can't see a, a child in front of them. You said uh, yeah. um, make it harder to speed uh, in different ways by by street design and and catching speeders with red light cameras. Aren't these all anti-freedom? <laughs> um freedom for whom? I mean, you are, we are in a society, we do have to respect, you know, public safety. There are rules around um, ensuring that the public can travel safely on public streets. And, and we have rules in place around that. So you can, we do have all sorts of regulations that try and consider the public good. And it's kind of where are our priorities here? Are our priorities really getting people to the next red light 20 seconds faster? Or are they to make sure that we can walk and bike without being, you know, worrying that someone's going to hit it, hit us? I mean, it's it's really about what our priorities are. Some of the resistance to these really kind of common sense, I guess, regulations it comes from people who are talking about equity concerns. So, mm-hmm. you know, like when when you put like, where do you put red light uh, cameras or speed cameras that matters? And uh, how do you make it fair? Right. I mean, I want to stress that ideally we wouldn't need to worry about punishing people, you know, after the fact, after they've already been involved in a collision or, you know, behave dangerously. I think we want to make it difficult or impossible to be involved in that situation in the first place. And that's by limiting the vehicles we drive and the roads we drive them on. But collisions do happen every day. So we need to address them. And speeding is not a victimless crime. (laughs) And We have evidence that car crashes are more likely to happen in low-income neighborhoods where people live, you know, closer to highly traffic corridors. You're near a highway entrance. There are higher traffic volumes, bigger intersections, all sorts of ways that add up to being in a, you know, more dangerous place and and a way to make those places safer, short of just changing the street design, which is a very slow and, and costly project is to enforce traffic rules equally with cameras. So a key point here is that the fines don't need to be big to make a difference. And you can imagine a system of um, graduated fines where the fine increases with more violations or or graduate you know, changes by income. Politically, it's really hard to do some of the things you're talking, uh, probably all of them. I mean, speed limiters in cars, size of cars, cameras, they all have a lot of resistance. But do you think that if we showed how these could be done in the right ways and fairly that we could go some ways to overcoming that resistance? Yeah, that's a, I mean, great question. So, well, they definitely won't be popular, at least not at first, right? So no one wants to find, um, you do have to get over that initial resistance and there are transition costs to achieving safer roads. And those are largely political costs. So the, the problem is that the benefits, you know, safer roads for everyone are more diffuse and harder to pinpoint compared to the costs, which are pretty concentrated. So you can have a few angry drivers get, you know, can point their fingers at local officials for implementing cameras. Um, it's harder to take credit for or feel that you've benefited from implementing a policy that helped to prevent a crash from happening. You know, if it works, then something doesn't happen, essentially. Um, you know, another concern people have is they often worry that the cameras are just a way to generate revenue when the purpose is really to increase safety. So as I said before, the fine can be really small for enforcement to work. Ideally, you wouldn't collect any money because that would mean that no one was breaking the rules. Um, and then, yeah, with time, drivers get accustomed to enforcement and roads will get safer. You know, we adjust to the cameras and in exchange, we get safer neighborhoods and a more just system that catches people who break rules. All right. Thank you, Miriam Pinsky, for another op-ed in the LA Times. How often do you come out with these op-eds? <laughs> um, not that often, but um, I'm glad you uh, liked it. Thank you so much for having me on. That was journalist Miriam Pinsky on how to prevent traffic violence. Now the recently signed Massachusetts Act to Prevent Traffic Fatalities with State Senator Will Brownsberger and co-hosts Galen Mook and Scott Mullen. 
speaking of getting run over by trucks, oh, what a segue. I hate to have to do this, but we have some good news on the advocacy front. Yeah, great news. Yeah. Uh, so the Act Reduced Traffic Fatalities, a piece of legislation that has been in play for six legislative sessions here in Massachusetts. Twelve years. Got... <laughs> Honestly, it's only that long. It feels like, yeah. oh man, I was, I wasn't gray before, yeah. like this. <laughs> but, but neither here nor there. It it actually made it through uh, several times this session, like back and forth through the the House and the Senate to the yeah. governor, back to the House and Senate, back to the governor, and right. signed into law by Governor Baker on January second. What a way to start the year! Yeah. And he had what two days left in his term? Yep. Credit really goes to the legislators and their staffers for keeping this, uh, keeping it going, keeping mm -hmm. the conversation, keeping the engagement, keeping the timeline tight. Right. Um, yeah, it took a long time to get this bill through, but this bill is chock full of stuff. Yeah, it's a big one. I've actually got an interview with Senator Will Brownsberger, our big champion on this bill. 12 years for this thing to come to pass. I do think that it, it really um, uh, is showing the way the momentum is picking up for uh, bills like this and, and safe cycling infrastructure, which is going down, and mm -hmm. that's just going to help people move, right? It's going to help people move and, yeah, and, uh, and safely. You're putting a positive spin on it. I mean, the name of the bill is called An Act to Reduce Traffic Fatalities. Right. It wasn't like a let's promote the good. It was like, let's stop from killing people right, right. and acknowledge that there are unnecessary deaths. Right. Um, and and is, probably in every district as well. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Because uh, this is this was not just for bikes. Right. Um, um, there are some bike specific pieces to it. But people on bikes, people on foot, people in wheelchairs, uh, people on skates, right. uh, people fixing cars on the side of the road. Vulnerable road users. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep, right. Yep. Got that defined, which in my opinion, is is the collective win yeah. that we all have here. And we can build on that, I heard you say before, which is so true. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to happen. Um, yeah, this is uh, me interviewing over Zoom, Senator Will Brownsberger. Um, Senator Will Brownsberger, thank you for joining us on Bike Talk here. Um, we are super grateful to have you as a champion in Beacon Hill on all of our bike-related legislation. But um, first off, how are you doing today? Great, and just great. Glad to be with you and... Uh, thinking about bikes, which I enjoy doing. <laughs> now, I know you are a personal rider yourself. You commute sometimes by bike, sometimes by foot. Um, what's your bike experience out there? How is it riding these days? You know, um, I don't know. I, I think I've heard other people say this, but I feel it's a little scarier than it's been. I think people just started driving faster during COVID. People have gotten into mentality of uh, blasting around and I think I feel I feel like I've had more near misses and it's been a little scary. That's my feeling. I don't know if you feel that way. It's definitely a different dynamic than it was three years ago. I feel that too. But I've actually been spending more time on the rail trails and the pathways and finding some cut throughs to get around. So I've been, been doing my dandest to avoid traffic personally. That is extremely wise. Yeah, no, I find myself walking, running, taking the tea a little bit more and mixing it up. Speaking of dangers of traffic out there, the reason that we brought you on today is to talk about the Enact to Reduce Traffic Fatalities legislation, which you've been a champion on for several sessions now and just got signed into law about two weeks ago. Congratulations, first off. That was such a major accomplishment for us. Well, it's something we all did together and glad to be part of it and glad to drag it across the finish line. Yeah, yeah, I'm proud to be a part of that coalition with you there too. Um, so for those in our audience who have no idea what we just did, um, can you explain a bit about what an act to reduce traffic fatalities is? Sure. What it really is, is um, a collection of things that were identified by the Vision Zero Coalition uh, meeting together a few years ago. They had, there were two big things. One was the hands-free cell phone bill, and the second is, which is done. Then there's the issue of automated enforcement, which is not done. But then there were a collection of other measures that, that seemed important um, and that were co you know, combined in this bill. So those include, number one, uh, safe passing distance. We don't want people in, you know, surrounded by 4,000 pounds of steel going too close to people who are not on the roadways. And so that means the vulnerable road users defined as basically anybody who's on the pavement who's, who's not surrounded by, you know, a vehicle, uh, whether it's an emergency worker or somebody on skates, a pedestrian, cyclist, whoever's out there but not protected. And basically, the bill says you got to you got to drive at least four feet away from a vulnerable road user. That's a good key idea that protects a lot of people. 
And obviously, it's the kind of thing that's hard to enforce, and it's not going to get enforced on a day-to-day -day basis. We can't even enforce, you know, red light, red lights, uh, or, or speeding well enough. But what I do think is that as this principle is incorporated into drivers' education and with you know some public messaging, it'll it'll, it'll save some lives because pe some people will get the message and will stay further away and not not make the kind of mistake that does lead to fatalities. The definition of a vulnerable user now. Do you see that as a foundation for other legislation to be built off of? Is this a base to go from, or do you kind of see this as in itself the goal? You know, this in itself was a goal. Uh, it had been a goal that goes back to uh, before 2010. We passed some significant bike, bike legislation in 2008, and the next thing up at that time was to address safe passing distance. And so it kicked around for a couple of years and then came into this larger package. Uh, I think I think it was 2014 or, or maybe 2013 that we finally filed that that is part of this vulnerable road users package. And it's and it's gone on since then. So I think getting that across the finish line in alone is a big deal. Yep. Uh, I'm certainly open to other things that we can do to protect vulnerable road users. I'm all about that. But I don't have I don't have a next step in mind that it framed that way. Do you? Gotcha. Uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll talk. Uh, I'll put it that way. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, I'm 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 up to hear uh, yep, up to up to hear your ideas on that. The other big thing in the bill is, and this is I think a really emotional issue is the uh, side guards equipment to be added to trucks to make sure that people don't slide underneath them. You know, the, the big long trucks have a way of swinging around that sometimes catches people by surprise, and and people die that way. And uh, we've had um, all too many of those fatalities right here in Boston over the past decade. This speaks to that phenomenon. The other part of it is uh, visibility. We've also had some tragic accidents where vulnerable road users were just at a place where a truck could not see them, you know, near the truck. And you know, you, you'd think the truck driver would know where they were, but the truck driver just couldn't see over the hood, uh, couldn't see behind them. And so, the, you know, this this requires a proper collection of mirrors on each vehicle. Um, and again, I think that has the potential to save some lives as well. I'm excited about those pieces. They are kind of path-breaking. I think we are the first state in the, there's a first state in the country to require something like this. I think the District of Columbia has done it. I think some municipalities have done it. I think Boston was an early uh, adopter on some of this. But um, there's no there's no other state in the country that's doing the program we're doing. It is limited to start off with to vehicles that are owned by the state, and it will expand in a couple of years to vehicles that are um, used by anybody who has a contract with the state. And I think we'll we'll get some time to have it shaken out and defined a regulation. And then I think um, there are, there are avenues where we can expand that further. And so I'm I'm looking forward to doing that because I feel really strongly about the uh, the truck provisions. For our listeners who are unfamiliar, the concept there is that there be what's called a lateral protection device, basically on the rig of a truck from the rear tires to the front tires. So if somebody is basically uh, struck by a turning truck driver they're less likely to get kind of rolled under the wheels. Is that a good analysis there? Yep, yep. Basically, it's a panel hanging down between the, uh, the, the the wheels of a trailer, the back half of a swinging truck or any large truck that would basically sweep somebody out of the way instead of allowing them to, to go under the wheels. Obviously, it's not going to be fun to get swept out of the way that way, but it's, yeah. it, it, it beats getting crushed under the wheels. <laughs> so that's the theory of it. Reducing fatalities is the name of the bill. It's very prevalent because I personally have made ghost bikes for cyclists who were killed in that manner. And it is absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. all too many of those. Yeah. So another provision I'm curious about this bill is that you have data collection standardized across the state. I wonder if you could speak on that point. Oftentimes, uh, accidents that you know involve vulnerable road users are not fully recorded or reported in the same way that motor vehicle accidents may be recorded or reported. So this just mandates the collection of data by local police departments when, when you know when they when they intervene in these situations, um, and hopefully we'll get a better sense of the, the ways people are getting in trouble on the roads, and that may influence the course of future legislation. Yeah. Now, was was this brought up? I'm I'm curious of the provenance of that aspect, and and as an advocate, of course we're always looking for better data and we, we do not have good data across the state. Um, I'm curious if you can think back as to um, where that one came from. Honestly, I can't. It's been in the draft of that bill for a number of years and um, it, it's, I can't remember where we got that. Well, I guess I bring it up because it's fascinating that, you know, it takes an act of legislation in order to get the state to, to do that. And I think if this has been a concept that we all agree on for the past literally 12 years, 
does it even need legislation or could the state have just done it on their own? Um, I know it's a lot of questions. I see. See, I think I think you're basically ordering municipalities to collect a lot of data. You're ordering police departments across the state to do it. So I'm not sure the state would have had authority to do that without legislation. Interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, a state official, they might be exceeding their remit if they did that. Yeah. Either way, I'm grateful that now it's codified so that there's no question about it at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, my, my brother-in-law was in an accident when he was on a bike and uh, the, the police just weren't that interested in it, you know, <laughs> just sort of, you know, okay, you got knocked over. Well, you, you, you look like you're, uh, you're breathing, uh, you know. Yeah. That's true. Now everybody asks, what's the crash rate in Massachusetts? I'm like, well, we only really have the fatal crashes, frankly, because those are the yeah. only ones that really rise to the reporting. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, so one more aspect of the bill that I think most of our listeners would be interested in is the requirement for cyclists to have rear red lights at night. Yes. Yes. And, and that was surprisingly controversial to me because I would not be caught dead on the road without a rear red light. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you, you absolutely want a rear red light, and they're not expensive. Um, and cyclists already are required to have a white light on the front of their bikes by law. Uh, this just and they, they had there's an existing requirement for a red reflector on the back of the bike. So this just adds a requirement that cyclists have a red light on the back. And you know, this is added, you know, frankly, by a senator who's looking at it from a driver's perspective. That hey, I, I really don't want to hit people, and I'm afraid, you know, people sometimes people come out without lights, and it's really dangerous. Everybody should have active lighting. I say that, I you know, I, and I would I, I say that as a cyclist, and I would I, mean, I, I recommend anybody that's going to be on the roads at night should have a lot of active lighting, uh, so that people cannot miss them. But the that was controversial. Some people felt it was a burden on cyclists or would lead to people being stopped. So we, we added two provisions to, to make sure that people are comfortable. Uh, number one, that uh, this cannot be the primary basis of the police stopping a cyclist. And second, that it will not be conclusive evidence of contributory negligence on the part of the cyclist if there's a lawsuit as a result of the cyclist getting injured. You know, the fear would be the cyclist didn't have a light, they did get injured, and automatically they'd have trouble recovering. Uh, because it's sort of their fault. Um, so this says, no, it's going to be up to the jury whether it's their fault. It doesn't doesn't say it's automatically uh, their fault. The way I look at this, again, it's the same thing as the, as the safe passing distance. I, there really is going to be zero enforcement. I don't know anybody who's ever been stopped for not having a white light on the front. I'll be you know surprised if you know anybody ever gets stopped for not having a red light on the back. What I do hope is that cyclists when you know, people, when they go to a bike store, are going to be told that they need to have a red light on the back. And so the bike stores will will be the, the avenue, really, where uh, this gets, um, if you will, not, not enforced, but just sort of promulgated to, you know, more rear red lights will get sold, and that's a good thing. Yeah, or just given away. Um, or given away. Yeah. Or given away. I mean, you know, mass bike, you know, anybody anybody holding a safety thing can give away red lights and, you know, tell people, hey, it's, it's the law now. Yep. Go out and do it. Yeah, no, I'm a fan of that. And actually, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that you were able to do the nuanced added verbiage to make sure that it wasn't punitive and wasn't a, another case of inequitable enforcement, which arguably is a concern that we all have to face just in general society. But um, I agree with you. I think as a cycling advocate, the more lights we can have out there, the safer everyone will be. Yep. Yep. So that's a packed bill. Senator, you put so much into this, and I'm grateful that you chased it down for six sessions, which is 10 plus years. Can you talk a little bit about the process, the machinations, the sausage machine that went to getting this bill across the finish line? I'm grateful to um, my partner in the House on this, who is Representative Mike Moran, who filed it on the House side. You know, I'm a state senator. I can get things done in the Senate, but it always takes somebody in the House to do it. It, you know, it's always a matter of the stars aligning to get legislation done. This is not the first piece of legislation that's taken me, you know, ballpark 10 years to get done. And it's all about, um, you know, you got to stay with it. You just got to stay persistent. And um, at, at some point, you're going to have an alignment of players, all of whom want to get it done. And you're going to be able to pass it across the finish line. Yeah. And this was a fascinating take on how a bill becomes a law in my read, because you did this through informal session, which means that it had to go unanimous in both chambers, which nobody could raise their hand and say no, which you got done. I mean, and if then, anybody did say their hand, raise their hand and say no, it wouldn't go forward. That's correct. Yeah. Everybody wanted to get it done. Uh, you know, after, uh, you know, the, the Baker administration wanted to get it done. Uh, Chairman Strauss wanted to get it done. Chairman Craig wanted to get it done. Or Mike Moran wanted to get it done. I wanted to get it done. 
but you know there was some movement around uh, and hashing out of details and as often happens it takes us as long as you have uh, to yeah. get that done uh, so if you have if you have till the end of session you you, you kind of uh, dance till the end of the session and but but every i was i was grateful that people didn't take it to the very last day which would have been scary it was a wonderful example of collaborative work and um i'm you know i haven't seen government work that well uh, in lockstep so congratulations there well uh, thank you and thank you again for mass bikes efforts uh, and the efforts of liberal streets and so many others to make sure everybody knew that it was important yeah i appreciate that I'm curious on what's on deck for you. What are you looking forward to this session? Well, you know, uh, my big priority right now is climate change and addressing the um, implementation issues. You know, we've got these great goals, but are, we really have to be in the weeds and, and really addressing nuts and bolts about how that's really going to happen. So I'm very focused on that. I do have one more thing in the bike safety space, which is the issue of automated enforcement. Uh, you know, using cameras to enforce uh, speed rules, cameras to enforce um, you know bike lanes or bus lanes, cameras to enforce uh, stop stop signs and so forth or, or red lights. That's an extremely controversial issue. So I so I approach approach that with a lot of humility, um, and I know there's a lot of pushback on it. So we'll see how that goes. Fascinating to see get some examples of where it's been successful and challenged uh, around the country. But um... well, lots of work to do. Thank you. Um, one last question for you, and this is a question we ask all of our interviewees of what is your bike joy just that little bit of inspiration out there that you feel comfortable sharing about why you are so passionate about the work that you do well i got a lot of bike joys actually i mean if i think of all the joys i've had on a bike it's pretty moving uh, i rode across the country in 2011 uh, which was it's just a peak experience from beginning to end there's so much out open road out there that the people need to see and enjoy yeah Thank you, Will. I, I appreciate your sentiments, your work, your effort, and um, I'm proud to be collaborating with you on all this stuff. Back at you. That was Massachusetts State Senator Will Brownsberger with Galen Mook and Scott Mullen. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.